Welcome to the Decent People Podcast, a production of Decentral Media, where we're committed to telling the stories of the founders, builders, and visionaries who are creating a new decentralized economy and internet experience. You guys know it as Web3 or blockchain, but we're going to bring you the smartest and most interesting people in the space for intimate conversations that reveal their background, how they got into crypto in the first place, and what they're doing today to make a decentralized future a reality. Thanks so much for joining us and check out our site at decentral.io. Now to the show. Hi, and welcome to the latest episode of the Decent People podcast. I'm your host, Matt Lysing, and today we are joined by Austin Federer. He is a head of comms for the Solana blockchain. Uh, it's one of the biggest uh, Ethereum competitors. It's uh, very fast and very cheap, um, amazingly uh, high-tech blockchain. So I'm really excited to talk to Austin about that. Hey, Austin, how are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me on today. Yeah, welcome to the show. Um, so I'd love to know, uh, just, you know, I like to dry, type, dry, just dive into people and like their backgrounds and stuff. So I'd love Let's to, I'd love to hear about, yeah. Um, like where you grew up and, and, uh, I noticed that there was some, uh, a little bit of journalism in your background, a little bit of, um, politics. So, uh, I'd love to hear kind of where, uh, you, you kind of were coming from on that end. Yeah, I think I have a pretty atypical journey into this Web3 and crypto crazy space that we all exist and live in now. So I grew up in Western Massachusetts um, around Amherst and sort of the towns around there. So very sort of like small town, New England, like there's, you know, it's like they call the five colleges area. There's like five colleges within like six miles yeah, of each other. I've got other a good friend who like lives that. right there. Yeah, it's a beautiful, yeah, spot, beautiful it, spot. It's a it's a lovely part of the country. It's a little sleepy, um, but it's a really nice part of our part of the country. And so I grew up around there. My dad uh, was a professor at Mount Holyoke. He taught criminology and sociology for a bunch of years. My mom did a bunch of uh, management consulting and worked at Ernst & Young and a bunch of those type of places. Um, and, you know, I would say for me, like coming out of high school, I was like, I don't really know what I want to do. I did. There was a lot of areas I was sort of interested in, but nothing that really felt super strong um and then going to lawrence university for college out in like appleton wisconsin uh, which is a small liberal arts school in the middle of nowhere in wisconsin um but it was great it was like a, a very academic environment it was um you know one of these like schools that was kind of so underfunded that you just could do anything and the professors <laughs> were just completely engaged so like my uh you know, I had like a crazy student job, which was like running the student tech production for like all these, like they built a brand new campus center and like didn't, didn't have any money to hire anyone to run the thing. Um, <laughs> and so like had me running like all the lighting and sound for like all these like crazy touring shows that would come through. And like, that was just like the vibe of the place. Like um, my freshman year, this, like this other student and I will um, just put together a grant to like get a bunch of solar panels and put them on the roof of one of the buildings and the facilities nice. guys were like, sure, sounds good. Um, cool. But it was one of those like crazy experiences that in retrospect, like it feels super web three, like there kind of just weren't enough adults in the building to mm. say the normal things like, no, you can't just apply for a grant for solar panels yourself. You probably have to go through some like formal committee to do this thing. <laughs> um, but just folks weren't, you know, everyone was just like doing their own thing. And and so that was a really, that was a really fun place to spend four years. Um, yeah, that's great. It's like a DIY college. Yeah. Uh, I love that. Totally. Um, yeah. And we'll get back to Appleton. But first, like, did you have brothers and sisters growing up? No, it's just me. Um, I think I think there was always some plans for siblings, and for some reason they never worked out. So it just yeah. ended up being me. What were you into as a kid? Did you like you know school sports? What, what what if I ran into you in your high school hall? What would you have been talking about at that point? Oh man, high school was a funny time for me. Um, so uh, you know the, the hilarious. You know, in, in most schools, like football is like the big thing but this being amherst and kind of a hippie part of western massachusetts it was ultimate frisbee that was like the big <laughs> sport that everyone was like oh yeah the ultimate team is great like we had one of the best men's teams in the country one of the best women's teams in the country um i played for a bunch on sort of like the jv team which is hilarious when you think about there being there were actually a, 
there's a there's a you know a varsity team and then two different JV teams, which is crazy when you think about that. There was enough people excited about ultimate frisbee that there were three teams, uh, and then there were I think two women's teams as well. So this, this is not crazy like a, to me at all because I went to UC Santa Barbara, and if you know, all right, there ultimate you go. frisbee, they are like one of the best teams in the country too. So and I knew, there you go. Yeah, I knew a couple of players, and they took it very seriously. It's a yeah, it's a good sport. Definitely yeah. a, hippie, a hippie sport though, and there might be Definitely some happy a sport involved somewhere along the periphery right <laughs> yeah i mean it's fun because it's like um it's like soccer without all the like drama you know mm -hmm. like there's something yeah. really really nice about like how much you're running and how much of a team sport it is that i i really enjoyed it um but i did a lot of work in um the theater department too i was never like anyone interested in being on stage but like lighting and sound design for shows was something i got really into i did a bunch of like photography for student productions and that sort of thing yeah. and because you know there's so many great um like colleges around there and just like a lot of a lot of folks kind of get in the art world seem to get burnt out from new york at least at that time and move out to places like western massachusetts so there was always a really good collection of like very talented people who were just trying to do shows and and do cool things so you know, as a high schooler, I got to work with, um, you know, a bunch of really fantastic um, theater producers, too, who were just, like, doing something in, like, the Berkshires for the summer or mm. something along those lines. And so I did a lot of that that stuff in, in high school, too. Yeah, that's great. Um, and then I noticed you kind of jumped right out of college into um, marketing, but it was for, like, a radio station, I believe, first, and then uh, you were at the Boston Globe with um, like yeah. online, uh, like uh, digital sort of media for them. Yeah. So, so undergraduate, I did a bunch of I did political science and environmental studies, and I spent a lot of that work on um, international transboundary water resource management treaties. Um, yeah. That was just something I was particularly excited about and interested in. Was sort of like. How do you develop social and technical compliance mechanisms in like the Indus River Treaty between India and Pakistan or Article 40 of the Oslo Accords between like Israel and Palestine and, and sort of why that Israel-Palestine agreement has been so unsuccessful and like Palestine's like one of the most water-starved places in the world, Israel's not. There, there's a whole bunch of treaty mechanisms there that made that relationship difficult, whereas India and Pakistan, two countries that have fought, you know, three semi-wars between each other since the treaty was enacted, but neither one's ever turned off the water, bombed a dam. You know, there, there's a whole bunch of really interesting dynamics there that made those two pieces of, of sort of treaty compliance really interesting to me. So going out of college, I thought about doing a PhD. Um, there's a guy, Aaron Wolf, at I think at the University of Oregon, who's like one of the world experts in this stuff. I, I looked at the potential of going in and doing a PhD program. And what I decided for myself was like, I wanted to do things that were going to have more tangible world impact. I would be going and like downloading these journals, articles, and you could see the little download counts there. And it'd be like this seminal paper that everyone thinks is like the most important thing in the industry. And it's like 135 downloads in the last year. And you're just like, that's how few people are reading this stuff. <laughs> yeah. Like I wanted to do something that felt a little bit more impact. And um, I'd always had an interest in journalism. Um, and so went to, uh, actually it's, it's funny. I got a, an internship out of college at the NPR show on point, um, which at that point was hosted by Tom Ashbrook and was based out in Boston. And so I had one of those, one of those classic public radio unpaid internships for about six months there, helping sort of do the grunt work of producing a show, calling and booking guests, like. This is back in the days when they were like, what are people saying on Twitter? And so I'd like go through the Twitter comments and the online comments and like pull insightful ones and run them into the studio. And, you know, all that like very low level journalism internship work um, and kind of really enjoyed that process of like as naive as it sounded, it sounds maybe now like sort of helping facilitate a conversation to help people figure out what they what they think about things going on in the world. Um, and then so from there, got a. Does that go back, do you think, um, on the treaty stuff, like, was it the diplomacy part of it that kind of intrigued you? Or what was, because um, it's kind of su such yeah, an esoteric know, kind of corner of the world. What what was it that snagged you uh, in, into that sort of, I know you didn't go very far in that direction, but what was it initially that kind of brought you in? I think there's like, is this, I don't know who said, there's someone who said this, there's like two kinds of like millennials, the group who grew up watching the West Wing and the group who grew up watching 24. 
And those like shape the view of your world, either like the world is potentially trying to kill you and you need to be the strong man who's like the only person protecting America or like fundamentally people can come together in large groups and they can do work for good that'll improve the lives of everyone. And I definitely fall into that latter camp. And like still to this day, like I think I can, if I'm honest and open with folks on Twitter, I can convince them that maybe they're seeing something in the wrong way. Mm-hmm. And like, who knows how how true that is, but that is like very much how I like approach my world and how I think about this stuff. So like that that role from like treaties and international water management into journalism, especially kind of in the, you know, this was like 2013, 2014, felt pretty organic and felt pretty, pretty genuine at that point um, where this was kind of before we were aware of, or at least before it had really come onto the scene, this idea of like, really strong, overtly deceptive media, um, which obviously we're inundated with now. Um, But this was kind of before folks were kind of aware of that stuff. It was something I was thinking was largely still going on just on the periphery. And so that felt like a really interesting place to be. So I took a job at um, KBIA, which is this public radio station in Columbia, Missouri. It's actually (laughs) owned by the Missouri School of Journalism. Um, Got paid a whopping $28,000 a year. Um, moved down there and just ran digital content for them for about a year and a half, which was a really great experience. Yeah, at least you were in Missouri for that twenty-eight grand. It probably goes a little yes, bit further exactly. than New York or San Francisco. Um, yeah, I had a I had a lovely, lovely, beautiful apartment that was like five hundred bucks a month, like right yeah. downtown. Walk to work, like that part of it was really nice. Yeah, and that's one of the best journalism schools in the country at uh, Missouri. There, yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. So it was, I mean, it was another like example of just getting able to learn from really excellent people. And, you know, ironically, I don't think I learned much about journalism. I actually still to this day think like a journalism degree is like questionable. Yeah. I, I think like largely what you need to do is learn how to think and learn how to like process management stuff. And that feels to be like the value of a liberal arts education for me. I say the same thing to folks being like, should I go to school for like, something to get into web three. And I'm like, if you're going to college, like for, and want to do something in web three, like go and learn how to think, don't go and like learn how to like do computer science. You can teach yourself that nowadays, but there's very few places you can still learn that well. Yeah. I somewhat agree with you on that. Uh, I went to Berkeley uh, as a graduate school journalism and, you know, I don't think the program itself helped me very much, but the my fellow students were amazing. I learned a lot from them, and and getting Definitely. access to the, to the teachers and the professors that I had was probably the the best part of what you know that two years brought me. Yeah, so yeah, it's the experience of like learning how to learn about learning that like I have found the most useful thing in carrying me through the rest of my career. Yeah, yeah, I'm definitely coming around to the idea that not everybody needs to go to college. They just need to learn to think um, for themselves. So we'll see. I've for got, probably I've got, 200 yeah. years, college has been the best way to learn that, but maybe it's not anymore. Right, right. And I say that as somebody with two kids that are gr- rapidly approaching college age, oh, so yeah. <laughs> it might just be self-interest. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And then, so how did you make your way to the Boston Globe? So there was um, there's a woman I was working with at, at NPR who was like a product manager there. And she actually like was a bit of a mentor to me back in the early days. Um, not as much for journalism, but like how to think about process and how to think about technology. And she took a job at the Globe and she was like, hey, you should you should come over here. We're, we're trying to rebuild the Boston Globe and make it a modern journalistic organization. And like, you know, there was a new guy who'd come in, the managing editor of digital and a bunch of these folks. And they sort of were like, yeah, we'll, we'll take a shot on like a 23-year-old to like come and run social for us. Um, and moved over to Boston, like got to work with like a bunch of the investigative reporters on teams. But you know, it's a classic thing where you, you take a job that's supposed to be innovative at a big old company mm-hmm. and you're like, oh, like 20% of the company is on board with this and yeah. 30% is dead set against it and 50% just doesn't care. <laughs> and so it was a really rough job, like trying to convince people like, we don't have to tweet everything that comes out. We have to stop chasing the clicks and page views. Like, and, and, you know, in some ways, like one, one of the fascinating parts about working there was like that firewall between editorial and business, which really should exist on a huge number of areas in journalism. 
was incredibly detrimental to actually like when an organization was failing on revenue and failing on journalism. Like, how do you how do you actually fix that problem when you're not allowed to have both sides talk to each other? Um, and that was a really, really like the thing I really learned there is like almost how organizations fail. Um, there were a few like very high profile non-journalism failures of the globe in the six months while I was there that were fascinating in retrospect to, to think about and look at. Um, and so I learned remind, a ton there, but remind yeah. us of one, one or two of those. Yeah. So, so one of the really like kind of very silly ones is like, the logistics operations center decided they were going to switch delivery companies that like mm -hmm. delivered the core product of the globe, which made most of the money was the physical paper. And they were like, oh, we can save 30% by switching to this other company. And they, you know, it was like a backroom thing that no one in the newsroom really knew about. But suddenly one day, like our entire Twitter mention feed was flooded with like, hey, where's my paper? Hey, where's uh, my paper? We never mm -hmm. got my paper today. And it turned out that 80% of the papers or some crazy number like that just hadn't gotten delivered that day wow. because they'd done this logistics changeover. And like th there were a bunch of those sort of like moments where the rest of the organization wasn't catching up. They were doing all this work on like paywall optimization that would inadvertently log people out of their subscriptions constantly. And so you'd have people who were like diehard readers of the Boston Globe who'd be like, every five minutes it logs me out. Like, I, all I want to do is pay you money and read the paper, and I, I can't pay you money and read the paper. And that got into the newsroom pretty aggressively because it got to the point where the journalists were like, you know, I go out to interview a source about a topic, and like we talk about that thing, and then the, and then the last five minutes of the conversation is like, hey, like, also, what the hell's going on at the Boston Globe? Like, I can't get on the website. My paper won't get delivered. Were they owned papers by the New York delivered? Times at this point? No, this is after John Henry had come in and done his thing to oh, buy okay. it. Okay. So this was partially that whole, like, rebuild of process. They, you know, they were going through a, play, a whole thing where they're going to sell their presses. Like, it was really not the journalistic side that was failing, but, like, you would saw journalists starting to change the way they covered types of stories. It was less thoughtful and it was less in depth. And there was, to be clear, there was still amazing journalists like working there. But like, you know, like one of the most amazing data journalists I'd ever worked with, like she got fired because she was like pretty high up in the union, right? Yeah. Like it was like it was just like oh they're just layoffs. But like there were like two two or three people who were like more junior and worse than her. And like there there was a bunch of those sorts of things where it was like. Um, I'd never really believed that whole idea of like, there's a real big divide between like different types of organizations, or different types of departments within organizations. And this was like, oh, everyone has a fiefdom. Everyone is just trying to protect their fiefdom because they all know that like the revenue is going down, layoffs are coming. And that's what happened to me. Like six months later, I got, I got laid off because it was like first in, first out. Right. Yeah, and like, right. that's fine. That stuff happens. Um, but it, it was a really interesting inside look at an organization that some people were trying to fix and other people were just sort of riding out. And that was fascinating to look at from the inside. Yeah, I, I know that you said that you, you learned how institutions fail. And I wonder if that carried through to you um, in sort of like the Web3 kind of stuff that you would come onto. Was that sort of, do you think that lesson stuck with you and, and sort of made you more receptive to kind of the web three approach to some things? I think so. Yeah. I mean, one of the, one of the things that's so interesting about this space and, and web three is like, there's a lot of failure in web three, but it's very different kinds of failure. It's not usually organizational failure. It is either, um, or, or maybe it is organizational failure, right? Th this is kind of one of those things that's so strange about this space is that everything is always late and yeah. everything is always like, there's a great meme of like a beautifully, like the first third of a horse is beautifully drawn and yeah. the middle half is like not very well drawn and the back looks like a two-year-old drew it. Yeah. And it's like web three product roadmaps, right? Where yeah. it's like the white paper is really awesome and then the shipped product doesn't live up to that. I think that that is like one of the most fascinating things about this space is like we are organizing a global distributed community where not everyone works for the same thing to build these projects. And that's really hard. Mm -hmm. And like, I think there's been an underinvestment in this space in thinking about how you 
build that process in a way that doesn't involve centralization. And that's like a incredibly boring topic, right? In some ways, right? But like, this is like the the work but, that um, but absolutely the central. organizations, yeah. Or, I mean, like the Linux Foundation has done this pretty successfully, right? Linux is probably the most successful decentralized project that's ever existed. Yeah. And there's a lot that like Web3 could learn from the early open source community, I think. Yeah. I, but then you have Torvald, who is just a complete maniac, right? <laughs> like, right. Totally. I've heard, I've heard stories yeah. about him. Everybody has. Um, but Right. And this is kind of like that. How do you, like, for, for, for a movement that is incredibly focused on decentralization, why are we still falling victim to, like, the cult of the founder and the cult of personalities, right? Like, Vitalik is not out there saying, like, I am the sole founder of Ethereum and the most important person in Ethereum. But everyone, from users on Twitter to journalists to whatever, like, Vitalik has a cult-like following. And, like, I'm not sure he likes that. But yeah. it's very strange that for a decentralized movement, we're so quick to jump to, like, like who's our Elon Musk, you know? Yeah. I think it's really hard to be a leader, though, on the on the flip side of that, you know? It um, is. People don't, yeah. I don't think, tend to be leaders. They want to be followers. And maybe they don't want to, quote unquote, but they, that's just what tends to happen. I think it's a more natural progression. So yeah. that is one of the more interesting social kind of factors in, in this space is that you do have to kind of step up and be a leader um, pretty much in, in every role you're engaging in where, so I think that's off-putting for some people and, and it makes us want to elevate somebody like Vitalik um, to that kind of hero status. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like, it's all across the board, which is like the weird part. There's even like very crypto and I'm not, not going to call it any specifics, but very crypto native conferences that are like, oh, we'll only let founders speak. Mm -hmm. And it's yeah. like, I, really? Still? now <laughs> yeah so so now that we're on to crypto like how did you did you get into bitcoin yeah. or, or you know in college or like because that was sort of like where you were that, that's kind of the timeline right yeah so i i bought some bitcoin in like 2012 on like some super janky exchange and lost my keys like six months later yeah. and like you know now is it probably like 50 bitcoin or something like it's probably oh. pretty painful nowadays right yeah um but like my initial uh, but that was the days when like pgp email encryption was like a huge pain to try and do like we just didn't have mental models for non-technical folks like i didn't go to school for engineering you know like or computer science or anything like that like i wasn't programming i wasn't like like Private public key encryption was like super weird back in those days. Like, oh, which one do I have to keep private? Where do I store yeah. it? How does this whole thing work? Um, so that was something that I was like, initially I dabbled in a bit. I didn't really get it. Um, kind of dropped out of the space for a while. And then in early 2017, I moved to New York and joined. I've been following crypto, but like pretty skeptically. And I joined a, a what turned out to be a failing fintech company that was trying to pivot into building a borrow-lend token on Ethereum. Okay. And, you know, when your job depends on it, you just sit down and learn the damn thing, right? And so that's yeah. kind of like I was forced to sit down and, and read and learn about this stuff and like, okay, how do smart contracts work? Like, what can they actually be used for? All that sort of thing. That company ended up failing like two months after I joined. Um, but I got really bit by the crypto bug at that point and started to really see how these technologies could improve the world. And, you know, decentralization for the point of decentralization is never something I've been into. But decentralization as a way of changing power dynamics, empowering different groups of people, um, creating systems that are harder to be captured, uh, I think were really interesting ideas to me. And so, um, you know, after this this company you know, kind of shut down. Um, I went to work for Republic, which is an offshoot of AngelList, um, right. running marketing for them and really helped them build up and launch the Republic Crypto and Republic Crypto Services um, yeah, Kenneth, organization. Kenneth Nguyen, right? Yeah, Kenneth Nguyen. Yeah, Ken Nguyen, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I his, talked to him a few times when I was at Bloomberg. He's a good guy. Yeah, yeah. He's um, an incredibly dedicated founder who's just been like, honestly, by sheer force of will for the first three years, he kept that organization alive. It had, it had no, I don't want to say it had no business to like survive, but like, because right now Republic is a, it's a fantastic organization. They've been doing incredible things, but like those first two years when it was just doing equity crowdfunding, 
um, that was a really hard business to cut it in. And he, mm-hmm. you know, uh, a weaker founder would not have been able to keep that thing through into the success that's been today. Yeah, and just so listeners know, Republic allows kind of almost anybody to invest in companies um, that aren't necessarily public, right? And like not just an accredited investor. So it's it's more like a retail focused. Am I getting that correct? Yeah, exactly. Like AngelList is like the home for accredited investors to do this sort of thing. And a Republic, you could put in, you know, 20 bucks, 100 bucks, something like yeah. that into a private round of a company. And that was a really powerful new thing. And we did some cool work using debt instruments to actually do token presales to non-accredited investors too on the crypto side of things. There were a lot of really innovative stuff that kind of got started there. And now Republic has a whole institutional side as well and a whole advisory services that they do. But it was a really cool place that was at the intersection of like investing and marketing and product and also like just the beginning of crypto Yeah, for me. Was there any project in particular that sort of the light bulb went off over your head or, or I know you were talking about how it's expanding the, the capabilities of, of systems, but was there anything, you know, specific that, that really appealed to you? So I think, I think some of the stuff I started to, to understand was around like when the governance conversations were starting to come up, like a dead end idea that I don't think anyone ever took any were token curated registries but they were all kind of the rage in like 2018, which is basically the idea that you could have a registry where folks would buy tokens and stake their tokens too. And that could basically be a way of voting with monetary force. So the problem with like Yelp or Google or any of those review-based systems is they get bought it all the time. And so the idea was like, what if you could have tokens and you attach those tokens to like, how good is this podcast? Well, I think it's quite good. I'm going to put some tokens against that, right? And and it would be a way of basically having people um, stake reputation on the quality of whatever that thing was. There was ideas that, that was going to be used for drug development. It was going to be used for, you know, restaurants, all that sorts of thing. And I think that was one of those ideas that got me thinking about it in the right way. Um, and at the same time, NFTs, and not NFTs from an artwork perspective, but NFTs as the idea that this can represent some sort of digital um, access mm-hmm. that is identified as being only one thing. So this is like before people were like, oh, NFTs are just going to be profile pictures. This is when it was like, the way you log into your office workplace may be an NFT because those credentials can't be faked. Right, there was lots of ideas about how NFTs could be used far outside of the art world and community world back then, and those were two things that really got me interested. There's a few, there's a bunch of ideas for projects we we did like the token sales of that I was like, I don't think this is going anywhere. Um, one of them was a decentralized video streaming service, and I was like, I don't, I don't see the competitive reason this needs to be decentralized. Um, another was an Oracle solution. Uh, you know, lots of stuff like that that just felt like it was either too early or just like a miss. But it got like learning about things you don't like is almost a better way to sometimes learn about the things that you actually might like. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, I've always thought, or I don't know what you think if you agree with this, but I think NFTs are like the first step towards a digital identity. You know, that's been a really tough thing to solve in a decentralized, yeah, you know, ecosystem because the way we use it in the traditional world, of course, is like the DMV is like vouching for you or the right. passport office or it's some centralized authority. But it seems to me that an NFT could, could is a step in that direction for having some kind of digital identity that is verifiable and trusted. Yeah, I, I agree. I think the like, the idea that like some trusted entity could issue an NFT that's transfer locked to my wallet that says like, this is a U.S. person, they are an accredited investor, and they live in the state of New York. And that may be all the information that, um, you know, some some KYC DeFi platform needs in order to accept me, right? I think there's like a lot of interesting ideas there. The, the challenge with any sort of on-chain identity has always been if, like, I personally can't see a way it doesn't become a massive ad tracking and surveillance network. Mm-hmm. And... I've been looking at a bunch of architectures for decentralized identity, and I haven't yet seen a solution that to me feels like it isn't like the ultimate like surveillance tool. Um, and maybe we'll get there someday, but um, well, isn't yeah, the idea? It, it, it seems. Uh, yeah, I've had these conversations with folks too, and I, I don't under, uh, quite get it myself. But I, the conversations I've had have sort of led me to think: well, you could have uh, several different wallets, and this wallet is like 
got no information, you know, like I'm not giving anybody anything. And then this wallet's my yeah. medium wallet. And here's my, you know, my more personal, like, is that, is that idea kind of filtering so the, through? Do you think? The trick is like, I have a friend who worked in ad tech for two or three years and the number of data sources that they would use to assemble a profile on who someone was included like IP address, like fragments of cookies from like 25 different websites. Like, you know, the fact that like the NSA program only needed metadata to like figure out basically who you were in your entire life and like everyone you were talking to. And like, that was actually more helpful in like unraveling like a network than actually the content of the phone calls. I think we, I think a lot of the people who are working on decentralized identity are very smart and they have a lot of great ideas, but they're underestimating the economic incentive to crack the identity behind any sort of obfuscation. Like even Apple's whole differential privacy thing that they were using, there were there were ad tracking engines that were actually looking at the way your specific iPhone, like I, the technical details I'm a little, I, I don't like know exactly how this worked, but basically they could identify that your phone was using differential privacy and they could use that as an additional way to track you. So the ad tech guys are really good. You know, and and they have a, a you know they're they're sort of like they're they're equally as good as any of those like you know Russian troll farms that have like been like working to plant disinformation in all sorts of governments all around the world. Like they're they're really good at their jobs. Yeah, it's like and scammers. So, they're always one step ahead, or maybe two exactly, steps ahead. Exactly right. You know, the, the, yeah. yeah, we're always playing defense against someone who's trying to do something. And so I am I am basically concerned that uh, the ad tech guys are too good. I wonder if um, and the zero decentralized identity proofs. is like a super cookie. Yeah, zero knowledge proofs are awesome. I think there's be, a ton maybe of a layer. There. Yeah, maybe that could be a layer of protection for um... totally. But then you run into like tornado cash and OFAC problems, right? So it's a very tricky system, I think, to to make it work. Yeah, I do but I'm too. Hopeful. I, I don't think that is going to stand up in court, to be honest, because um, you can't yeah, ban code. Code is law, or code is speech, in my opinion. I think that's been already pretty well settled. Yeah, you, I agree, but also like there's a ton of speech you can still get in trouble in court for. Yeah. Like libel. That that is that is true, but that's that's not yeah. That, you know, you you can't ban the English language, you know, just because totally. it allows you to to libel someone. Um so that's my feeling totally. on what they did with the, the smart contracts uh, with Tornado Cash. Yes, I would agree. So, okay, you're at Republic, you're helping on the crypto side. Um Take, take me from there. Like, what's next for you? Yeah, um, got an offer to go join a really early stage blockchain infrastructure company. That seemed like a really exciting space to me. They were trying to basically make it so anyone could run a node on their laptop, their smart speaker, their connected TV, whatever. Spent a little bit of time there and then joined uh, Bison Trails, which, you know... Uh, that's a research now is Coinbase firm, Cloud, right? Or so yeah. So Bison Trails was a um, like a premier blockchain infrastructure system that ran pretty much everything on on various cloud providers. But their whole thing was they were the first um, truly enterprise grade blockchain infrastructure provider. So th their theory was that like there were a, a lot of companies were spending a lot of money and time with an internal DevOps team that was running infrastructure to keep. You know, Ledger was running a ton of infrastructure themselves. Binance is running a ton of infrastructure themselves. And some of these companies still do. But, like, it's very expensive to run all this blockchain infrastructure in-house because you need a bunch of different DevOps folks. And you, you basically need a business that, like, supports that massive scale. And so, um, you know, Bison Trails was built by two founders who had already done successful companies before. They'd sold their first thing to Etsy. Um and they basically came in and said, like, we can build great blockchain infrastructure and we know how to build a company. And so Bison Trails was serving, like, trading firms. It was serving, you know, exchanges. It was serving all sorts of different types of customers with really high-performance, high-reliability blockchain infrastructure. Basically, before then, everything that served the blockchain infrastructure market had been focused on cost. And this was the first company that was focused on reliability. And the thesis there is basically... You know, if you are PayPal or you are Visa, you lose far more money from downtime than paying three times as much as you should for your infrastructure, right? Because 
they make all their money on order flow processing. And so if, if you can't process the orders, you can't make the money. And so something like a Coinbase um, was willing to pay two to three times more than a competitor might pay to be able to have someone you could page in 30 minutes and there would be an engineer who would wake up anytime and fix stuff. To have yeah. a hot spare system and fall over ready to go and have automated systems that switches that in. So that was a really cool place to work. I was there up until the acquisition by Coinbase. Um, and that was a really cool place to look at like, how do you build a software company that scales really quickly? That was sort of always a little bit targeted for acquisition. Um, and it was very different than how you build like a long-term focused um, company as well. Yeah. And but that was great because I got to work across, I was working on product marketing there. And I got to work across probably 20 different blockchain protocols. It was a really, really fantastic vantage point to see, you know, this was in like, this was basically like 20, like 20 roughly, um, to see a vantage point into all of these different protocols that we're developing and building and what the different architectural decisions were, what the different design decisions were. It's a guy, uh, Victor Bunyan, who's, who's still there at Coinbase Cloud now, but was like this protocol specialist. And his job was basically to like, research all these protocols and figure out like what are the different ways that like we can build products and services to support them and you know like that that work that he was doing there that would then turn into a lot of the stuff i was like building materials off of for product marketing and helping the product team figure out like how do we build something for this thing um it was just an incredible exposure into the space and that was the thing that like changed me from being like i want to work in companies that are working in blockchain to i want to go work for an actual protocol Right, like working for Bison Trails or working for an investment group, you're not actually working in. You're not working in blockchain. You're working around blockchain. Yeah, adjacent right? to like it. Like you're you're basically working for a Web two and a half company, and I really wanted to go work for a proper Web three company. What? Um, so I'm curious if those twenty protocols are still around. Um, all of them, or if have some gone by the wayside? And almost what... all of them are still around. Yeah, it was like um, you know Polkadot, um, New Cipher, Keep which actually merged, which was pretty interesting. Um, I did a bunch of work on the ETH2 infrastructure and the ETH2 products and services in the lead up to the Beacon Chain launch mm -hmm. um, back in 2020, um, you know, all that kind of stuff. A bunch of work with Nier. Um, funny enough, like Bison Trails did support Solana, but like I never had any conversation with anyone at Solana until after really? I left. Oh, wow. That's funny. Um, yeah. So I think you, so Coinbase comes in, buys Bison's, bison trails and that's kind of it for you there right that was yeah i mean it was one of those things where it was like i don't think i would have done well at an organization as large as coinbase mm -hmm. that has that many layers of sort of process and bureaucracy and you know something you have to do if you're running an organization that big but like it just probably wouldn't have been a good fit for me yeah so if you've made this decision that you want to work for a blockchain like how does one go about that what did you do next to try to make that a reality well, you know, I, I knew I knew a bunch of people who worked for all these different blockchain organizations because of my work at, at Bison Trails. And so some of it was just reaching out to them and being like, hey, like, here's what I do. Here's what I've done. I'd love to go work for a proper, like, Web3 company. Well, we didn't call it Web3 back then, but, you know, yeah, a proper yet, blockchain. Yeah. Right. Um, and, you know, I was reaching out to a few folks who I'd used to work with or something. And I reached out to um, a guy, Ben Sparango, who used to work at Republic. He was actually there for, I think, so I had to hire him. I think he worked for us for like three weeks. Then he took, he quit for a better job. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I was like, hey, do you know of anything interesting in this space? He's like, actually, I just joined Solana Labs. And also Jed, who is the general, who is was one of the lawyers at Republic had just joined to be the general counsel of Solana Labs. And they were like, you should totally come in and talk to us. Like, let's get you on a call with Raj and Antoli. Like, I, I think this is a, I think this is a really cool place to work. And at the same time, like, I think your skill set would be really helpful for this, for what we're trying to do here. And I was like, I don't know, I've been working with 20 different blockchain protocols for the last year. Like, I, I, I haven't worked with anyone from Solana, but like, yeah, I'll take the call, right? Yeah, And, uh, you know, I think it was like 30 hours from like first call to offer letter. Like, I, I, I think that the, you know, getting on a call with these folks um, who are now my colleagues here and, and, and chatting with them about, you know, and with Raj and Anatoly about like system architecture design. Like I, had a, I in my experience working on ETH2 back when we still called it ETH2, 
there was a lot of questions I had about like, how does DeFi work in a sharded environment? Like, aren't we going to have a lot of fractured state going on? How does that affect liquidity? All these different types of things. And the answer from like, you know, Anatoly and Raj was like, this is why Solana is built in one global state that we think a lot of these problems, step one is to make the base chain as fast as humanly possible. Step four is sharding, right? Like that should be like the last thing that you try and do when you're trying to scale a blockchain. And that, that you know, that's a pretty bold philosophy. It was, it was a zag while the rest of the market was zigging, um, but it was one that they were willing to take. And, you know, for me, I was like, look, even if this thing goes nowhere, these are incredibly smart people. I'm going to learn a ton. Um, but I also thought the architecture was probably the right approach. Yeah. And just so. for listeners, um, Solana is incredibly fast. I think it's 50,000 transactions per second. And uh, these are the latest numbers I've seen. And it, the cost is very low. It's much far below a penny per transaction. Whereas Ethereum is somewhere around 14 transactions per second. And the cost yes. varies uh, depending on the demand on the network. But Austin, can you kind of just walk us through, like, what is that architecture? How did Solana achieve that um, 50,000 per second transaction rate kind of out of the box? Yeah, so all these all these transaction numbers you get from ev pretty much ev every modern network, they're all estimations based on, like, various types of use. So a more complicated transaction, you know, will take more compute units. And so, you know, that, that 50,000 number is one of those numbers that's, like, if it's all simple transactions, you're about that big. The, the basically that you think about is like a compute budget, which is like how much compute unit can be done in one second on the network. And so for Solana, um, it runs on a pretty different architecture. So one of the major things was getting rid of the Ethereum virtual machine engine and building a new engine, a new virtual machine underneath that. Um, and then using this thing called proof of history, which is not a consensus mechanism, but it's a, it's a giant distributed clock that each of the validators runs. And so every transaction that comes in is, is it's not exactly a timestamp, but it's functionally timestamped. Mm -hmm. And so what that means is that the network can process things in, that are not overlapping in parallel, okay. which is a really big change. So on Ethereum, everything is done in order. Even if one of those transactions is that, you know, I'm going to send you $1 and then, you know, two of our friends are also going to send each other a dollar. Those transactions can actually execute in parallel because there's nothing overlapping between them. In Ethereum, it's all in order, right? Which is like, they were. it was the first smart contract blockchain. Like it was, it was incredibly innovative for the space. But by introducing um, parallelism into this runtime, Solana can be much faster for non-overlapping transactions. And because the runtime itself is built just on a different subsystem, it's, it's sort of in-order processing can still be much faster. And so these are just some technological architecture changes that um, make the network scalable and, and much faster. Um, it doesn't rely on sharding. And kind of the, the analogy with sharding is like, you know, it's basically like you can take a highway and you can, if you want to pump more cars through it, you can either add more lanes or you can make all the cars drive faster, right? And the Solana approach is basically like, the first thing we need to do is make the cars all go at 500 miles an hour, mm -hmm. right? Because when you start creating like a 16 lane highway, moving from one lane to the other lane to actually get to the exit ramp you wanna to get to is cumbersome and it takes time. And it's like that whole process of switching lanes, like that is basically inter-shard communication on other, other network architectures. Um, so there's there's risk involved, there's time delays involved, there's ver there's validation involved uh, to make all of that interconnective fiber within a network run. And so Solana is basically built on a more simple paradigm that we should make the base layer as fast as humanly possible before looking at any of those other solutions to create scale. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, there have been some hiccups though along the way and some problems like the yeah. the, network, the network has gone down several times um there's been some hacks i mean there's hacks everywhere but yeah how do you i mean obviously decentralization is is very important as we've been discussing with you know to you and like it's a it's a core kind of belief i think that you have it it i think rubs some people the wrong way when you can see like oh solana just turned its blockchain off and then turned it back on like, yeah, so I do want to kind of correct those? that because there there is no ability for anyone to turn Solana off and back on. So so that's like a pretty this is the thing that like pops up every once in a while where like 
people think there's an off button that was hit or something along those lines. What happens in all those situations is, for lack of a better term, the blockchain crashes, right? The same way that any other software system could crash. It gets into a state where it can't um, resolve itself, right? It can't make forward progress without the intervention of the humans that run all these validators all around the world. So basically the network gets to a decision point where it says like its internal software can't say which of these two options is correct. Right. And like so that's a where validator could be making could be making two blocks, right, per transaction that so you, and you Yeah, or this which, is like a you don't know which one is is the real record. Sure, it could be a forking incident, could be all could be due to a bug in the code, whatever the reason is. It's not like someone turns the network off. The network the network turns itself off for lack of a better term. Yeah. And then it takes human intervention to restart it. And this is not um, something specific to Solana. This happened to Ethereum 2 and the Ethereum 2 testnet, where all the validators had to do a coordinated restart of it. Um, but, you know, the reliability of Solana is the highest priority for the engineering teams who are working on kind of solving these problems. And, you know, part of this comes from the, uh, the network's two and a half years old, right? The mainnet beta launched in March of 2020. And since then, there's been such an astronomical user growth that a lot of systems um, just have not been battle-tested sufficiently enough, and some of that battle-testing happens in production. And so there's a lot of work being done right now on, on new network components. You can go to slanda.com slash upgrades, and you can see some of what that work actually looks like. Um, but the, the number one thing that you know the core engineering team and all the global the global team of contributors are working on is increasing that reliability because that you know that, that is I would say the biggest knock against the network and lots of it is a fair criticism that yeah. um, you know that I would say that the, the part that's interesting is we're not really seeing the network when it goes down it's not going down for the same reason right it's it's going down for edge cases that are being found which should be found before they're done in prod but. There is progress being made there, is the thing I would say. Yeah, and that's one of the interesting things about blockchain. And it's everything's in public, you know, like failures are entirely public and like, you yes. know, successes are public and it's all right there for everyone to see for, for good and for bad. Um, yeah. I'm just curious, like the parallelism that you were describing that makes it so fast, is, is that does that have an effect on sometimes where, where the network gets, you know, in trouble? Uh, is that a trade-off that was made or are those totally separate things? Yeah. I mean, there, there's definitely been, I think there's been one situation where that parallelism created a, a, a fault that um, basically like a bug, a, a bug that was not previously known was triggered. And that's mm -hmm. kind of one of the issues that caused one of the network outages. But there's a few things to sort of note about outages. And the first is that they're not actually a function of centralization or decentralization. The decentralization of a network isn't really impacted through an outage. And the other piece is that the the state of Solana, right, the actual like account ledger and database, um, from its perspective, when the network goes down, there was just a really long block. There's just like a seven hour block as opposed to a 400 millisecond block. So obviously it's bad for users, it's bad for, you know, the user experience of using the network, but from a from a technical standpoint, from a safety standpoint, the state of the network is never at risk, right? Which is different than the architecture of some other networks. There are other networks out there where if the network can't reconcile, it actually just keeps going and does something called a block reorg, where they basically go back and rewrite history and say, we thought this thing happened, but actually after reconciling a bunch more data, this other thing happened. And so that is unwinding transaction history and rewriting the past. And the Solana network, when it gets into a situation where it thinks it might have to do something like that, it halts, which you can argue is a better or a worse system architecture design, but it is an intentional design difference to say yeah. that like, if, we, if, if the network can't be 100% sure of what's supposed to happen, it should stop and it should rely on basically social consensus to figure out what the right answer is here. Yeah, I definitely kind of fall in that camp. I'd rather have it stop and pause than have to reorganize the history because that's the whole kind of point of blockchain is that that history is, is you know, sacrosanct. Yes. Do you see a, a future where there are just different chains all operating, you know, in the same space? Um, 
or do you, do you think they're going to be, is there going to be a convergence or is there going to be a winner or how do you, how do you look out five or 10 years in, in terms of the different L1s that are out there like Ethereum and Solana yeah. um, and, and that? So I think a lot of this depends on what the kind of companies are that end up adopting these systems. So one of the ecosystems I think is pretty interesting to look at is Cosmos um, because Cosmos is built on sort of a more like application specific chain architecture. So if you are like a gaming company, right, you you can make a really strong argument that you actually want to build on a global open public blockchain like Solana. You could also make an argument that in order to capture the value and to retain control of as much as possible, you should build on an application specific side chain. And so you're seeing actually a real divergence right now. There are some Web2 companies that are starting to build on Web3 and they say, we want to be part of the whole ecosystem. We're fully in. We're ready to like eat our existing business model and disrupt ourselves and move on to this new thing. There are other companies that say like, we're kind of still experimenting and we're not really sure if this is going to be the future, but we know we have to experiment with it. And we want to do that in a situation where we have more centralized control over what happens. And so that's where you see those folks choosing something like a Cosmos architecture to build on. And one of the fascinating things about the Ethereum transition is the future of Ethereum post-surge, when they add all the, the shards and everything like that, it's going to look a lot more like Cosmos than it looks like Ethereum today. And that's a really interesting dynamic in the market. I think there's yeah. definitely room for a multi-chain future, but I think what we're going to see is a, a greater and greater divergence between stuff that's built to be public and open and like Web3 native and a lot of these Web2 companies coming over and kind of building something that looks a little bit more like Web2 and a half. Yeah, and I, I mean, coming from a financial background, that's a lot of, um, you know, banks and financial companies are trying to, you know, experiment yeah. with blockchain, but they want it to be enterprise grade. You know, they want it to be a closed chain, not public um, for various reasons. Um, and I've sure. always thought- And, you know, you can argue they should. Yeah, I, 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 I you know, agree. Like, I, yeah, like if you're if you're Bank of America and and you're trying to figure out like how do I build something on blockchain, you probably still want a lot of centralized control over that, but you want the connective fiber to be able to plug into the rest of the DeFi ecosystem. Um, but also, you want the ability to like turn your network off if like you feel like something bad is happening on it or something along those lines. Yeah. Um, and then you also have the DeFi founders who are like, we want to replace the banks and we want to build it fully permissionless, fully open, fully on chain. And we're going to get, I think I'm excited for a world where both of those paradigms can coexist. Yeah. Well, Austin, this has been great. I really appreciate talking to me. And um, why don't you tell everybody where they can find you and how they could learn more about Solana? So uh, Solana.com is the best place to learn about the network. There's Solana.com slash developers if you're interested in getting starting building. Uh, for me, Twitter is the best place. I'm Austin underscore Federa on Twitter. That's excellent. All right. Well, again, thank you very much, Austin. I really appreciated the conversation and uh, I hope you have a great day. Thank you. This was great. That's it for this episode of Decent People. Thanks so much for listening. Check the show notes for more information on our guests today. And make sure to look us up on the web at decential.io. That's D-E-C-E-N-T-I-A-L.io. And on Twitter at Decential. Have a great day.